Voices of Hope is a podcast of New Hope Presbyterian Church of Castle Rock, Colorado. New Hope is a church that puts people first. You can listen to our sermons and podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and any other popular podcast platforms. This week, Pastor Russ brings us a sermon called God's Hope With Us Always. It looks at how hope doesn't just look ahead, but also looks at the past and affirms nothing was wasted. Everything played a part. It comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Gosh, that was kind of wonderful. <laughs> uh, the music today has been amazing. To the choir, to Sarah, thank you. It's just been tremendous. And what a great feast and what a great way to come to worship. What a great way to begin Advent. Jordan mentioned that I do a class. I'm going to do it this, this year uh, on Sunday mornings and again Wednesday nights. And it's a Christmas class and it's one of my favorite things to do. And indeed, we do go through some of the traditions, and then we also go into the story and how do we make sense of that. And, and one of the questions, and I'm going to ask you this question, and you don't have to answer out loud, but I would like you to consider it. One of the questions I like to ask is, when you think of Christmas, who embodies that in your life? Who is the person that comes to mind who somehow embodies the kindness and the generosity and the warmth and the unconditional love and some of the things that we associate with Christmas. Just, would you take a moment and just locate that person in your life, whether they're alive now or in your past, who is it? All right. If, if that person that you thought of was a grandmother, you are at about 60% of the vote that people usually give. There is something about that, that person and in a lot of people's lives that somehow embodies it. And if we want to think about what does it mean to embody Christmas, what does it mean to embody that God is with us, that's a person to pay attention to. I, I raise that because our passage this morning is also about some grandmothers. It's about the grandmothers of Jesus, if you will. And if you were to turn to the passage, you know, if we were to read it, you would be asleep by now. Because the passage is out of Matthew 1, verse 1. So the very first thing that Matthew wants to talk about when we're going to get ready for Jesus, when we're going to get ready for this person who embodies generosity and, and the unconditional love of God and the purpose and the meaning, the very first thing, it doesn't have anything to do with shepherds or mangers or, or stars or, or sheep or wise men or stars or singing. The first thing, the first thing that Matthew decides to talk about is genealogy. Let's see if we can't get that up there. Yes, because this is the very first word. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And then it goes on. If you've ever been one of those that said, hey, well, I'm going to read this book from beginning to end, and you get to the genealogies, it's a bit of a stretch, right? It's a little tough. You have to hang in there. You go, I don't even know how to pronounce these people's names. I don't know why they're there. Russ, why are we even talking about it? We're talking about it because this is something that Matthew thought was important. Luke does the same. If this person is going to be the Messiah, if this person is going to be the embodiment of God in flesh, if this person is going to be the one who is the fulfillment of everything back to, from David the king 
to Abraham, the patriarch who started it, then you need to show your work, young man. Genealogy is resume. It is how you validate your credentials. Show us, talk to us about your people. Who are your people? How did you get here? Because you, there better be a line to those people if you're going to claim something, and so he does. So in, in some ways, here it is. It's meant to impress, and all of that works, except if you do read this, you're going to find some surprises. In fact, you're going to find there are four. And you might think, well, that's interesting. Women are never talked about in the genealogies. I wonder what Matthew's getting at. Maybe he's just trying to be more inclusive. And gosh, you know, the grandmothers of, of our faith are the ones who have informed us. And wouldn't that be wonderful? Because we've got some people. We've got some people. And if you were to think, who are the, the matriarchs of faith that, that Matthew might pull out that everybody would recognize, you would be forgiven to come up with names like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah, you might even go to Miriam, or there's a couple that, all of these are part of the great tradition and the great lineage and the heritage that comes and says, yes, this person, if you're gonna mention the women, these are the course of the people you would mention, you would be a bit surprised. No, you would be shocked to find out that these are not the four women, could be, but instead Matthew chose four other women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Already the genealogy is problematic. One, it has women in it. What's that about? But why these women? Because by definition, they are outsiders. None of them technically is Jewish. They are all from outside or married outside or, or some, Ruth is a Moabite who is, con the whole race is condemned in the Old Testament forever and ever to have no association. How did she get in there? And why would you mention her if you're trying to prop up Jesus, if you're trying to give the credentials of Jesus? Why would you talk about somebody like that? Why would you talk about Tamar? Judah was the father of Perez, Perez or Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. If you were to go back, and by the way, this is not what you would do during discovery time. What you would find at Tamar was married to the oldest son of Judah. But as the Bible said, he was evil. God took him. And as according to the law, and the custom, if they didn't have a child, it was beholden on the next son to marry her so that she could have a child. He did. He messed up. God took him. So now the third in line, and Judah steps in and goes, okay, sure, we'll fulfill the law, but he's young. He's too young to be married. Uh, go stay with your dad, your family there, and then when it's time, I'll call you. Guess what? He didn't call. And and finally, Tamar wakes up and says, you know what, if this, this is going to take what we would be calling proactive. The Bible would just say it's scandalous. 
So what Tamar does is she knows the habits of Judah and the, trail and, and the roads that he travels, parks herself at one of the places on, on the side of the road at, at where the prostitutes are, dresses up like a prostitute, seduces Judah, and then when it comes to light that she is now pregnant, Judah doesn't know because she's disguised. Judah is, of course, enraged. His righteous indignation comes out. How could this possibly happen? And he wants to burn her. And then she shows evidence of who the real father is. To his credit, at least Judah owns his, his sin, acknowledges. And one of the twin sons is Perez, who's an ancestor of Jesus. So it fits, but why would you tell that story? Are you going to tell that story to your kids and your grandkids? You probably won't tell the story of the other one either. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. If Tamar was trying to disguise and, and, and act as a prostitute, it just, Rahab just was. Again, not a story for discovery time. Why is this in here? Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. The, the Israelites were coming and they wanted to take Jericho. They go to Rahab. She becomes, she tra she's a traitor to her own city. She decides that the, it's, it's a lost cause. She's going to throw her lot in with, with this group. All she asks for all the shelter and the, and the connections and the information is that when they come, they spare her and her household. It happens. They do. She's one of the few that's left alive. She marries one of the soldiers, one of the people. Her son was Boaz. She's in. This is not the kind of stuff that you usually go on Ancestry.com to find out, right? We, we want the heroes. We, we want the Sarahs and the Rebecca's and the Rachel's. Well, why, why do we have that? Now, the next one is Ruth. And Ruth, Ruth is, is one of the shining lights. There's even a whole book about Ruth. The thing that makes Ruth so problematic, of course, is that she's a Moabite. She's from that tribe that they have nothing to do with. How is it that mentioning her has, has, gives any validity to Jesus as the Messiah? And while you're thinking about that, then there is Bathsheba. Actually, Bathsheba isn't even mentioned. She is just known as the wife of Uriah. When we talk about sometimes the other woman, that's Bathsheba. She who must not be named, that's Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the one who was seen by David. She was bathing. He calls her in, seduces. In today's term, he rapes her. She becomes pregnant rather than, rather than own up. What he does is just make sure that Uriah, his faithful soldier who's out in battle, he sets him up to die. He does. David now marries Bathsheba. That child dies. The second child, though, is Solomon. And Solomon is a king because Bathsheba connives and subterfuge and does everything. It causes a civil war. Eventually, the whole kingdom splits in two. They can't, a thousand years later, they can't even bring themselves to name her. She is, you know, 
the wife of Uriah. She's sort of the Yoko Ono of the Old Testament. She's, she's blamed for, for breaking up, you know, something really good. Neither did, but that's her reputation. She can't even be named. She's in here. So the question is, why? Why would, why would Matthew, why would this be in here? Why would, why would you take and talk about the, these people? Of all the people you could name, why them? What kind of Messiah is this? Good question, Matthew would say. Good question. Because this is not the kind of Messiah you are looking for. This is not the kind of Messiah who's more concerned with, with a polished resume of everything looking good and everything fitting in. This is the Messiah of the people who are on the outside. This is the Messiah whose background brought him to this place and his ministry was going to start to include outsiders. If you recall, what did Jesus get criticized for over and over again? It's because he was too generous. He was too kind. He was too inclusive of those people, the bad people, the marginal people, uh, the messy people, uh, the people who shouldn't have been there. Jesus was always there. And this is Matthew's way of saying, see, this was part of his genealogy. This was part of his background. We should have known. We should have known if we were paying attention that this is what this guy was going to do. This Messiah, nothing is going to be wasted. All are included. There are no unacceptable people. That's true then, and that's true now. As we are preparing ourselves for Christmas, and we do everything we can to somehow polish us ourselves up and make ourselves look good and keep everything kind of a nice candlelit soft glow around this season. It is good, it is right, it is necessary to take a moment to recognize that if we really want to celebrate the birth of the Messiah, then we need, we need to take seriously what he came to do in the first place. And he's gathering in the unacceptable. He gathers himself people who are who aren't even very smart or educated to be his disciples. Again, again, and again, and again, and here we are today. It means that not only are there are no unacceptable people, but there's nothing that's disqualified. There's no experience that people have that somehow disqualifies them for what God is going to do. It doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's bad. It means it's raw material. It doesn't mean that God causes these things or even allows these things. God just uses the stuff of life. And whether it's people who are divorced, whether it's our politics, whether it's addictions, whether it's our failures in life, whether we've been remarried, whether we feel like we are damaged goods, whether we, whether we have participated in betrayals and affairs. It doesn't matter. None of it, none of it disqualifies us for what God is doing. God uses all those things, always has, continues to today. We can continue to act as if we have to polish our resumes 
and only talk about the stuff that's acceptable and only talk about the stuff that makes people happy and comfortable. And yet, and yet it's in the broken places, is it not? Isn't it in the broken places of our life where God has been the most real, where grace has become tangible, and those are the learning moments and those are the places of strength and new life. Think in your own life the number of times you've heard somebody who's in the medical field, and oftentimes you can draw a line back to an experience of death or disease early on, and out of that came someone who was interested in medicine or law enforcement because there was something to do with violence or oppression. How many people are in counseling because there was some, some experience that, of, of emotional uh, upset uh, there, and they said, or, or a divorce or, or some great alienation, and, and they said, I want to be part of that. Think how many times a, someone has died because of drunk driving, and out of that, one of the things that comes is the mothers against drunk driving, a redemptive way to help people. There is nothing that gets wasted when God is involved. It's all included. And when we step back away from that and don't want to talk about that, we are cutting ourselves off from one of the great sources of what God has always done. I know, I know that right now, right now, there are those who have been through this last year and a half, two years, who are holding on to an awful lot of grief. An awful lot of grief. We've lost people. We've, we, we, we've lost members of our family. We've lost friends. We've lost traditions. We've lost connections. And even the grief, even grief is somehow used, redeemed, and becomes the raw material for what God is going to do. This is, this is the lesson of the great-grandmothers of Jesus. Think in your own life, what are those things? Think, and you might even think of the illustration of a pearl and how it grows. That's what Joy used as her image that we're gonna see here when she put together this next moment, this contemplative moment. And as you go through this and listen, what are those things in your own life that seem to be worthless, discarded, shameful, embarrassing? And what do the grandmothers of Jesus have to teach us today? Oysters make their home on the bottom of the sea. Because they must open their shells to breathe, it is inevitable that debris and sharp irritants enter, piercing their tender flesh. Oysters release a soothing, healing fluid that wraps around the injury layer after layer after layer, until a magnificent transformation yields something precious and valuable, beautiful. As you and I breathe our way through life, 
the tender flesh of our vulnerability is also pierced by slivers of mistakes, sharp bites of criticism, heartbreaks and seasons of despair. We can shrink, resist, or we can surrender to liquid grace that wraps holy healing around the wounds, layer after layer after layer. Nothing wasted, it all mingles with grace in ongoing magnificent transformation into something exquisite. Imagine picking up this pearl, placing it in your hand, Behold, it is you. God of infinite love, what do you see in me that I cannot see? I don't know what came and went through your mind as you were watching. I don't know what happened when you heard, behold, it is you. But to the degree that you were able to capture that and, and, and let that do its work in you. The work of Christmas has begun on this, the first Sunday of Advent. On this, the first Sunday, when we want to talk about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do, and we begin with, for crying out loud, a genealogy that traces Jesus back from where he is through David and then to Abraham, the one, the original, who was chosen and blessed in order that others would be blessed, in order that the Messiah would come to issue in a new era of blessing and fulfill all of that and more. And in this new era, lives would be changed. The world would be changed. There are some versions of Christmas that what Jesus came to do was to bring the presence of God. That now Jesus is here and now God is with us as if that was a new thing. That makes it for Christmas cards sometimes, but just don't tell the four grandmothers. They'd say nonsense. 
their life and their legacy and, and, and the, the lessons and all those who came with it would say, no, no, Jesus didn't come to bring the presence of God. Jesus came to reveal the presence of God that is here, that's always been here, that will never leave. That God has always been at work, even in the most unlikely places, in the most unlikely people, in the people that polite people don't even talk about, God is there. And if God could be there for crying out loud, where won't God be? Because the decision, the decision for us today, and as we go into these next four weeks, has to do with, will we resist that? Will we ignore that? We can't evade the presence of God because God is everywhere. We can resist. We can't ignore. We've done it before. One of the ways is if we spend more time and more of our energy trying to polish our resume so that what shows up at church or in our community is only the part of us that everybody wants to see that we think is acceptable, Churches do that. Sometimes churches are pretty good at that, unfortunately. So that the only part of us that's welcomed is that which other people think is acceptable. When we do that, we spend an awful lot of energy on the hype of Christmas. And we neglect the hope. It becomes toxic to those churches. It becomes toxic to our communities. The hope of Christmas is that not that somehow our life could be managed with just a little more work. If we just spruce ourselves up, we could be more, it's more manageable. The hope of Christmas begins with what's unmanageable. And it's not so much, well, our life wasn't so bad. No, it's because it was that bad and worse, and that's where it begins. There is a danger of living by hype instead of hope. Show me a family that can't share family secrets, can't talk about who they are, can't talk about their past, and I'll show you a place that's very brittle, where shame and guilt and silence are the watchwords, and that's how we control people's behavior. Because heaven forbid that somebody would bring up the parts of our history that are somehow unacceptable. Show me a church that does that. And I'll show you a place that runs on shame. Show me a community that does that, that can never even talk about some of their past, whether it's this past injustices of racism, oppression, intolerance, and all the other things that every, every community has in it. And yet, if we can't talk about those things, if we can't acknowledge those things, where in the world are we going to find reconciliation and health? When we live in denial... We are denying not only our past, but we are denying God a way in to make a difference in our world. When we, on the other hand, embrace and embody those things, now reconciliation can take place. Now healing can take place. Now life can take place. God is at God's best when there is something to redeem. And if we take that off the table and only bring the hype of who we are, then this stuff runs pretty thin pretty quick, doesn't it? When we pretend that the past and our past is an indictment on us and is the last word, we have neglected no matter what we say, no matter what we sing, is that God somehow gets the last word. We never let God get in. This year, let's remember that Christmas is more than a commemoration of something that happened a long time ago. More than something that, that, that took place and we, and we just come around and celebrate and remind ourselves of it and then take the decorations down. It is also a present 
reality, and it's an invitation to participate in what God is doing. And that means we take, and we take our past, and we take all the parts of us, all the parts of us, and we offer that to God for what God might do and what God might do next. We do that individually. We do that as a community. We offer our past as it is. We offer our present for what God might do. And if that seems scary, yeah, <laughs> of course it is. But the, the great-grandmothers of Jesus would remind us that God is with us. God always has. And God always will be. And now, what will we do? Would you pray with me? This day, oh God, we ask for the courage. The courage of hope. The courage of seeing our world, our lives, our families, our communities as they are, not just as we want them to look. Courage to offer ourselves, all of ourselves, back to you. The courage to be the ones who also are on the, on the outlook for people who are on the margins around us, to welcome them, to make sure that through our actions and our words, they know that they are more than acceptable. They too are loved. They too are included. They, too, have a place because of Jesus, the Messiah, the one in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Voices of Hope. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. Go in peace and have a wonderful week.